Welcome to the Healthcare Quality Cast, where we spotlight today's most exciting and inspiring quality professionals within the healthcare industry. Our podcast will dive into the career journeys of leaders that work daily to improve quality, safety, and service outcomes for patients, their family members, and their communities at large. Our mission is to provide motivation and direction to our listeners, encouraging you all to continue your efforts in improving the overall quality of healthcare. And now, your host, Jarvis Gray. Hello, quality people, healthcare leaders, and everyone in between. Thank you so much for tuning in with episode number seven of the Healthcare Quality Cast. And in today's episode, I'm officially rolling out the first installment of something that I'm calling Beyond Healthcare. But before I go down that path, let me start with a quick update on the progress of the show so far. As of now, we're moving into week number three and are knocking at the door of the 400 plus download mark through the first six episodes. Additionally, we've connected with over 80 subscribers to the show and have also earned three additional five star ratings since last week. A really quick shout out to Darb175, who truly enjoyed episode number six with Dr. Saria Sicosio. Quality people, we are off to an amazing start, and that's truly coming from your support of the show. Do me a favor. Please continue to share our show with your colleagues. Please continue to give us feedback that we can grow with. And if we earn it, please do continue to give us five-star ratings as it supports the long-term success of this show. Now, for our official Beyond Healthcare show, I was so very fortunate to connect with another quality person, but get this, everyone, she's from the automotive industry, but I am proud to introduce to you all a new friend and partner in quality, Dr. Alicia McCall Gabriel. Dr. Gabriel is a quality systems consultant for P3 Group North America, where she works with automotive clients across the entire globe to train, coach, and consult them on the effective deployment of their FMEA management systems. Dr. Gabriel comes to us with a PhD, get this everyone, in um, bioorganic chemistry and offers us an exceptional technical background in risk mitigation and quality control expertise specific to her industry. Dr. Gabriel was recently recognized in Crane Detroit's business magazine as a notable woman in manufacturing for her efforts in deploying an FMEA management system for a tier one automotive supplier. And on a more personal side, Alicia is the co-founder of Motor City Steam, which is a group based out of Detroit, Michigan, and works to provide science, technology, engineering, art, and math-related educational programs and opportunities for minority and underprivileged students. Quality people, please check them out at www.MotorCitySteam.com. Now, to healthcare leaders, we all know that we're required to perform at least one Failure Modes and Effects Analysis, or FMEA study, every 12-month cycle, but a potential reality that exists across many of our organizations is that these deployments 
could probably use an adrenaline shot in the worst way. So in our Beyond Healthcare segments, we'll learn from quality people from outside of healthcare that are truly dialed in to transformational practices. And I'll do my best to connect the dots back to you all, my healthcare quality people. Stay tuned. This is honestly going to be the most engaging conversation that you'll ever hear as it relates to FMEAs. And I'm still trying to figure out if that's a good thing or bad thing, but it's a pretty darn good episode. Last note and quick plug. Following the conversation, please email me, Jarvis Gray, at info at qualitycoach.org for details on our FMEA for Healthcare High Reliability Workshop. In this, we offer a blended model of coaching, training, and consulting solutions to help your organization achieve greater effectiveness with your FMEA rollouts. Okay, everyone, this ride is going to last for a little bit over an hour, but do me one last favor. Make sure that you have your notebooks ready and enjoy episode number seven with Dr. Gabriel. Alicia, are you ready to share with some quality people? I sure am. I am ready. Well, Alicia, we love to start the show with positive affirmations to really get the momentum going. Would you please share with us a favorite quote or mindset that you use, but also share how you use it and and apply it on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. So my favorite, it's really a mindset, um, and I'm consistently, consistently reminded of it because I realized that in about 2014, I'd moved home and all these kinds of things. Um, but there's a, a, the mindset is to make sure that you're confident, um, but you've got to make sure that you're fearless, right? So there's, there is a difference between being confident and being fearless. So when somebody's confident, you appear to have it all together. You can handle situations in public. You're charismatic. You can make sound decisions. Um, But when you're fearless, you don't have to appear to be anything because it doesn't matter. You force people to take you how you are, regardless of how you look. You don't care about others' opinions. And and that's what really being fearless is all about. Fearlessness is uh, moving forward without anything holding you back. So I pretty much apply this daily. And I'm typically in what some would call an intimidating situation or intimidating situations. Um, I tend to be the only woman and the only African-American person in the room, but I have something to share, and I'm not, share, I'm not really scared to share my insights with the people that I interact with. And that, to me, is a part of that fearlessness that I have to, uh, that I implement in my life every day. Well, I love that quote, that, that mindset, rather, because I think it's going to be so um, appropriate for a lot of the topics that we are going to discuss around FMEAs, and even as I try to connect dots with our healthcare leaders, um, I want them to keep that in mind as they listen to the rest of the show because I think there will be a draw between how healthcare can be confident and how we do FMEAs today or how we can get to a point of becoming fearless and, and really expanding that. So I, I love that that's a, a, a honest part of your day-to-day mindset. Absolutely. There is. I'm really excited about that, too, to talk about how uh, a lot of people get scared when they talk about FMEA, and that's not what it should be. So I'm glad I could provide some insight on that. Alicia, let's start with your exceptional background then. 
Could you please share with us what was your introduction to quality, but really walk us through your education and your career path and really, you know, what really got you down the journey that you're on now? Because um, I-, I share with you when we first connected through LinkedIn and me coming across your profile and begging you to be on the show, but um, I was blown away. And so I- I'm glad you said yes, and I-, I would love for our listeners to just learn about you really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So, I do admit that I have a bit of a convoluted journey to the quality realm, but I'm proud to say that because uh, really what that means is that there's always a place for you in the quality realm, right? So uh, I started uh, university, uh, studied biochemistry as an undergraduate at Xavier University of Louisiana in New Orleans, and um, then I pursued, I decided I was going to go to graduate school. So I obtained my PhD in bioorganic chemistry or synthetic organic chemistry because at the time in my head, I thought I would become this insanely amazing laboratory chemist, uh, you know, lab rat, if you will. And what I realized about halfway through my PhD program is that I really needed social interaction, right? And that is actually something that being in quality That is something that you get from being in the quality realm or in the quality space. So um, to add to that, um, I spent an entire summer abroad between undergrad and grad school in Ghana uh, doing research on plants uh, believed to treat diabetes and hypertension. Then I did two stints in Zambia after graduate school um, studying HIV AIDS and helping to implement um, a critical social intervention Uh, in order to minimize the stigma of the virus in and of itself. So um, I would say that my formal introduction to what quality is started after graduate school while I became a a grant manager. So I was managing this grant, this $1.5 million grant. I was doing research and things like this at University of Michigan at the School of Nursing. And when I started, there really weren't any policies or procedures in place. Um, There was some tribal knowledge, of course, but then when I had another job offer a few years later, I wanted to make sure that there wasn't a loss of any information or things that we learned, um, you know, the lessons learned that we gleaned over the last, you know, two and a half, three years. So what I did was I essentially built a quality management system with standard operating procedures, policies, um, other things to kind of streamline the transition for the, the next person taking over. Um, And then I moved into a quality control facilitator role at a small aerospace company, and there my tasks included everything that would be necessary to um, run a manufacturing facility efficiently, right? So this included participating in certification audits. Of course, that's a huge thing, um, at least in the quality quality realm, I should say, Um, customer audits, right? Um, and get developing SOPs, of course, reviewing FMEAs, um, determining root causes of failure, so doing lots of root cause analysis, if there were failures that were reported in the field, um, and then also engaging in the corrective and preventive action processes, right? So those are all things that I've learned um, as soon as I left uh, the, the aerospace uh, field or realm. And then, of course, once you get into the quality field or in the quality realm, it's Definitely not something that you can get away from, especially if you live in the Motor City, right? <laughs> so, Struck um, by the I, book. <laughs> I ended up, by, right, by the book, right? And so I was offered um, another position um, at a Tier 1 supplier to be the North American FMEA coordinator. And uh, after about doing that for one and a half years, 
I was promoted to the global FMEA coordinator. And I really want to hone in on this particular role because it really allowed me to get immersed in the automotive culture, which is very fast-paced, very demanding, especially when you talk about quality. And, of course, it's travel-heavy, so I travel quite a bit to Germany, northern Italy, Mexico, China, outside of the regular domestic travel to the plants that I had to, that I had to, uh, to do. And so I also experienced all parts of the supply chain. Um, I interacted with the OEMs, right, so GM, FCA, um, uh, Ford. I interacted with our suppliers, um, our manufacturing plants globally. And then, of course, I actually led a team of people to create what we essentially create, which we essentially created an FMEA quality management system for the company to use, right? So it took a lot of work. But we got there uh, before I actually started where I am right now. Um, I'm a quality systems consultant and uh, where I, I do a lot of these things now in terms of FMEA. So I've worked now as a quality manager. I've worked on an IATF implementation team. And for those who may not be aware, IATF is actually the new global um, automotive standard that the OEMs are holding their suppliers to. So that's the new and improved standard. And then also uh, I conduct uh, FMEA and problem-solving wor- workshops for teams. So that in and of itself is how I started in quality, my background, my education. And, yeah, it's a bit convoluted, but um, I'm very happy being in this space because it created a, a place for me to have this social interaction and also be technical and solve problems and help teams solve problems, which, um, of course, is also very relevant in health in the healthcare quality realm as well. It's so funny because of everything you just shared, obviously, was, um, at least from your experience working past your grant, is so connected to manufacturing. But as you shared, you know, your topics around FMEAs, quality management systems, um, even down to leading workshops and teaching, you know, your professionals how to problem solve. Um, right. Did you not? Those are the things that we quality professionals in the healthcare side we do it every single day. We just do them in our own, you know, in our own versions of factories and so whatnots. But um, so yeah, the, the connections are there, and that was again that was part of the draw um, when I came mm-hmm. across your profile and you know really wanted to get an outsider's perspective, so to speak, um, even though you you have some background with healthcare, but still you're not on the everyday grind like me and most of our listeners. Um, right. I, I think is, you know, you're going to provide such, um, I think a really unique perspective to everything that is FMEAs and quality. Um, let me ask you this. A, a lot oh, of your great. background, does it connect also into ISO? Is it, is, does ISO drive a lot of the work that you guys do? Yeah, so actually um, the automotive standard is a combination of two standards, and ISO being one of those. Um, but um, in terms of the, the, the nitty-gritty of, of it all, there are, some, there, go, there are going to be some differences between, um, obviously, the automotive realm and the healthcare realm. But uh, we do uh, – some of our organizations, actually, we're kind of working on projects now to help with potential ISO implementations uh, for smaller um, – organizations. So that's also something that we do, um, at least the, the consultancy that, that, that I work for, that's something that we do. 
but it's all part of this, uh, usually the automotive side of things. Well, and I'll share with you just to, again to, to connect the dot or to shorten that, that gap a little bit, but ISO is a slow but steadily growing trend in healthcare right now. One of our oh, regulatory wow. agencies, they promote the use of um, ISO and hospitals pursuing ISO certifications. Um, I want to say oh, wow. here in the state of Georgia, we may have, I want to say five or six hospitals that are ISO uh, certified. So oh, wow. again, it is, it, it's growing. Um, you'll see it more so on our healthcare device side and pharmaceuticals. They tend to follow more ISO regulated patterns and processes um, just because of the work they're doing. But in the hospitals themselves, it is actually a growing trend. And everybody, I think, now should be converting to ISO uh, 9001. Wow. Was it 20, 2015 yeah. is the latest? 2015, so, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely, that's right. Well, that's really good to hear um, because I, I think it's a, it's a good, um, it's a good method of standardizing and it's a good platform to kind of harmonize the things that you do and really um, improve uh, how your organization runs overall, right? So, um, it, you know, and we've, we've seen it be effective um, across smaller organizations and larger organizations. Um, and it's it's absolutely critical to their success, and uh, and I I would believe, and I would say that our customers and our clients would agree that us coming on board and helping them with those implementations have been very valuable for them and their customers. So that's good to hear. Let's jump a little bit into the meat of why I really twisted your arm to be on the show with us tonight. <laughs> okay. Would you would you be able to give a really in-depth introduction to failure modes and effects analysis or FMEAs or I always love to call them FMEAs. I don't know if you've ever um, heard them referred to as FMEAs. Yeah, we always say FEMA. It, it, we usually say FEMA, so we, I'm not uh, I haven't heard FEMEA before, but... Well, it's funny because I always roll my eyes when I hear people say FEMA. Because <laughs> <laughs> my mind immediately right. goes to, like, hurricane relief. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. But, no, for our listeners, share with, uh, a really good introduction to FMEAs and, and share with us why are they so valuable to organizations in your realm. Any pieces, I'll definitely try to connect the, the gaps back to healthcare. Right, absolutely. So um, I'm going to be as brief as I possibly can because FMEA can be um, and can get very uh, detailed, um, but sure. I really want to just make sure that we get the fundamentals and the basics of what FMEA is and what it can do. So essentially FMEA or failure modes and effects analysis is a method that really got popular in the 1960s, particularly in the automotive industry. And the reason why uh, is because of the liability that Ford had with the Ford Pinto. And many of us know about what happened with the Ford Pinto. There were um, lots of different uh, situations where if you hit the car from the back, um, the fuel tank was back there, and, of course, you caused uh, significant explosions and injuries and all types of things. So that's kind of where it started getting popular, at least in the automotive industry. But uh, it's a method, right? And it really does three things. The first thing that it does is that we're allowed to identify well in advance the severity of potential effects of failure, so impacts, as well as any possible critical issues, defects, anything that we think could be an issue, we're identifying it in advance. The second thing that FMEA does is it provides 
an input to reduce the risk of those critical issues or defects that we may see through implementing different actions, right? And we can implement actions either by preventing um, issues from occurring or detecting an issue as it occurs or after it occurs, right? We just don't want it to move forward throughout the process or to the end customer. And then the last thing FMEA does is that it supports various changes to this product or process um, over the course of time, right? And all of us quality folks love the words continuous improvement, right? So FMEA allows us to kind of document and support these changes uh, to any processes, to any products over time, and, of course, that's continuous improvement, right? So those are the three things that FMEA, um, in terms of its methodology, allows us to do. The essential key of all of this is to prevent failures, right? Don't manage issues after they've occurred. You need to do this in advance, right? Because in that way, we can assess how can we control it? What are the prevention things that we can put in place? What are the detection items that we can put in place, right? So prevent the failures. Now, most people, um, at least from the manufacturing or automotive um, and aerospace realms, uh, they kind of know or understand FMEA primarily from two perspectives. Um, these perspectives include uh, design FMEA or process FMEA. And uh, to kind of give a little bit more detail about those two really popular forms of FMEA, um, FME, design FMEA analyzes products um, or items that, are, uh, that we decide, okay, we're looking at defects prior to them be, being released to be produced. Right, So any issues that are caused by design deficiencies, there might be um, maybe certain specifications that aren't met, uh, maybe materials, we're using the wrong materials. How can that impact the, uh, the, the efficacy of our product, right? And we're, an we're analyzing all of that before that part is actually produced. So that's design FMEA. Process FMEA, on the other hand, is where we look at any manufacturing and assembly processes, and any potential failure modes that could be caused by process issues. So, for example, let's say we have um, an injection molding um, where we're molding plastic or something like this, and this could also be uh, important for the medical device industry, if you will, and there the machine doesn't get to a certain temperature, right? Well, that's a potential failure at that process step, and that would be an example of a failure we'd analyze through process FMEA, okay? So there are different types of FMEA as well, um, maybe risk-based FMEAs for project management um, or even logistic FMEAs where you're looking at potential issues within the warehouse or materials management. Um, you're basically analyzing failures as they occur at a specific place in time, okay? So there are different types of FMEAs as well. Now, um, I also kind of want to go into the kind of how this FMEA is organized as well. So there are specific uh, form templates that are required by either a customer or even determined by the organization that you use. And these templates have different column headings. And each one of the column headings um, consists of the following things, either the, the item being analyzed or the function of the process, um, then the potential failure mode, which could be the defect, defects that could occur, uh, potential effects of those failures or the impacts that would occur, 
preventive actions or controls. So how do we defect or how do we prevent this failure or the defect from occurring? And then detection actions or controls. How can we detect the failure um, or the defect if it does occur? And then we list any recommended actions. Okay, so recommended actions, these can only be preventive actions or detection actions, um, and these help to either decrease the likelihood of failure or um, improve the observation of the failure before it moves further in the process. Okay, so there's that template piece, which is uh, the piece of paper, if you will, uh, that we where we actually fill out the FMEA. Now, the critical point of the FMEA is actually the risk priority number or the RPN, right? So you'll hear RPN quite a bit. And the RPN is the product of three numbers. Um, these numbers are severity times occurrence times detection. And I'll go into a little bit about those definitions as well. But um, in terms of rankings, I'll use the rankings that are associated with the um, Automotive Industry Action Group's FMEA 4th Edition Handbook because it's actually a really good text um, if you want to just understand basic concepts of FMEA. Um, they have kind of the Bible, the FMEA Bible, if you will, on how to assess these things. So each one of our severities, uh, severity times occurrence times detection, each one of those numbers are ranked between 1 and 10, 1 being the lowest number of risk, and then 10 being the highest number of risk. So the lowest RPN that you can possibly get is a 1 times a 1 times a 1, which is a 1, right? And the highest possible RPN that you can get is a 10 times a 10 times a 10, which is a 1,000, okay? So <laughs> obviously somewhere as you're doing your evaluations of uh, each one of your failures, you're going to fall in between 1 and a 1,000. And I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, but there's some um, what we call thresholds that um, either an organization will uh, implement it to make sure that they are um, um, under a certain level and that they're assessing risk and optimizing their designs or optimizing their processes such that these numbers uh, fall within that threshold or below that threshold. Okay, but it's, it really depends on the customer and the organization itself. Now, I also want to talk about what is severity, what is occurrence, what is detection, okay? So severity is, by definition, it's where we ask, what is the ultimate impact if this failure occurs? So for example, if there's a loss of life, that's a, a severity of a 10. While uh, if we talk about automotive, a hubcap falling off of a tire uh, yeah, that's going to mess up the appearance of the car, but that could be ranked as low as a three or a four because that's kind of an annoyance, right? So that's not really impacting the function of the vehicle, right? Then we have the occurrence value. So occurrence, by definition, where is where we ask, what is the likelihood of a failure being detected? Or if there's data on how many times this particular failure has occurred previously, you can actually use that data or that number as a precedent. So, for example, let's say you're in a production uh, on the manufacturing floor and the failure happens every shift, right? So depending on the number of parts produced, this could be one in every 500 parts. You have one failure for every 500 parts. That would be evaluated as a six. In comparison to a failure that you've never seen before, it's kind of a one-off issue in the plant, um, that could be one in a million parts, and that would be ranked as a two, 
right? So you see the differences between um, those, uh, the occurrence values as well. And then the last definition uh, would be the detection number, right? And that's where we ask, what is the probability of the failure actually being detected, right? So for example, let's say a person uses a visual inspection. So they're checking parts with their eyes um, for failure on a part, right? And let's say that person, I don't, know about, I don't know about you, but if I'm checking parts on a you know, 12-hour shift visually, I'm sure I'll probably miss a couple of things. You know, we all are human, right? So that's going to have a lower probability of detection. So that would be a 7 or an 8. In comparison to if you have a sensor on that same machine detecting for the same failure, you'll have a higher probability of detection, right? So that would be ranked as like a 3 or a 4, okay? So that's severity, occurrence, and detection, and how we evaluate all three of those numbers from 1 to 10. Now, at the end of the day, the general idea is to optimize your design and optimize your processes from the RPN number, right? So if the RPN is high, and again, that number varies by customer or by regulatory body and even by organization. But if you have an RPN of 500, right, you definitely need robust preventive actions. You need robust detection actions and controls really in place to optimize or lower the RPN values to mitigate the risk of the defect or the failure occurring, right? Well, so, can, I, can I jump in uh, real quick there, too? Well, let me ask this question. Is it recommended that every organization essentially creates their own scale for occurrence, detection, and severity, and then their own scale for how to respond, you know, at the varying levels of tolerances? for their RPNs, or would those be recommendations that they could find in the handbook that you mentioned earlier as well? Or what, what is there a best practice either which way on how to tackle that part? Because I, I have seen a lot of variability, at least in my healthcare experiences, that those numbers are all over the place. So, I mean, the way, oh, yeah. You, oh, yeah. the way you're coaching us up right now is perfect, and it's making me think about all the variation that I've seen, and now I'm thinking, wow, how do we yeah. start to make that make sense? Right, right. So it's, I will admit that in the, in the automotive industry, it's easier to determine this, optimize, this optimization because usually our customers tell us what the number should be right, or, or how to evaluate this number. In the healthcare industry, I'm not, um, I have, at least I haven't seen clear evidence that, like you said, there is this RPN threshold across organizations, right? Um, that is actually, and this is in terms of a best practice, what I actually instruct uh, attendees and also clients is that you actually follow two rules. Right, So in some cases, you may have a customer that doesn't give you anything to, to any idea of how you should optimize it, right? But you as the organization, you know your process. You know your design, right? And you know where are the critical issues um, could occur because you guys have that, that core process or that core design knowledge um, that's, you know, that's right there in your organization. So I believe that it's up to the organization first to determine what the thresholds should be, 
that's that's what I believe. And I, I um, in developing the um, FMEA quality management system uh, that I mentioned previously, um, that's actually what we did. So we actually sat with the design engineers, the process engineers, and determined and went through data and said, okay, what are the things that we are seeing where we can actually convince our customers and convince the, the regulatory bodies, if you will, that, hey, we know exactly what's going on because this is our expertise and um, these are the things that uh, we would recommend that they should put in place um, uh, for us to produce a quality product. So I actually think it's twofold. One, yes, absolutely the organization um, has to sit down and determine what those thresholds should be. Um, and there are also different – I didn't go into many much detail about this, but there are even different ways to determine your optimization. Um, so it could just be the RPN. Maybe you are looking at the, the how high the RPN is or how low the RPN is. And some, orga some organizations do uh, what they call measuring criticality, right? So criticality – is actually where you only analyze um, the severity times the occurrence value, right? So that that's a that's the critical that's the criticality, right? So how how severe is it, and how many times does it occur? Multiply those two numbers, and that will give you a better way to optimize um, your your uh, your failures and determine preventive or detection actions, right? So those are things at the start when you decide you're going to do uh, and conduct FMEA as a team, um, those are things, you, that's like the first core thing that I tell people to do because it's, uh, it's critical to how your organization is going to interact with this document in the future and how you're going to kind of standardize how you do FMEA at your organization. Uh, I'll share with you one of the big movements across the healthcare space right now is Mm -hmm. is this mindset to become a high, highly reliable organization. I don't know mm -hmm. if you guys use that terminology a lot, but those are, you know, the organizations that have been deemed to operate in complex environments, have complex operations, and if things go bad, potentially mean the loss of life or, or larger, you know, the, large, the loss right. of many lives at one time. Um, so healthcare is getting into that mindset, and FMEA is being one of those tools that, truly supports that mindset as well. Now we have a chance Absolutely. to identify all of our failures, all of our breakpoints ahead of time, and come up with the, the appropriate actions. Absolutely. As I listen to everything you just shared, all I'm really thinking is that the possibilities are endless because we're talking about doing these in environments of intensive care areas, in pediatrics, in surgical areas, emergency care. Oh, yeah. But when you think about, and again, I'm just using the hospital just to keep it simple, even though healthcare is so much right. larger than just hospitals. Right. You know, a hospital will also have environmental services, you know, these other support areas, radiology. Right. Absolutely. Going into those areas and doing the same. The possibility of having to define our, you know, or come up with the appropriate definitions by the type of service or the type of department. Right. I can see mm -hmm. it being so intense, and at the same time, all I'm thinking is we got to do it. <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's almost no option. We have to do go through those exercises and come up with these definitions. Yes, yes, yes absolutely. I, I, I was, I'm, you know, I, I figured this would be part of our conversation um, because if you uh, look at uh, websites or read books about FMEA, no one ever tells you about 
what an FMEA meeting is or how to run an FMEA meeting, right? So there are um, typically, typically you have an FMEA coordinator or someone who has kind of more of the, uh, they're, they're going to be the mediator among uh, the, the core team members who have all of that process or design knowledge or other knowledge about the, the particular system, for example, pediatrics, right? You would need someone to kind of make sure that you're honing in on what you're honing, what you need to hone in on and not go deep into this rabbit hole, right? And, and I think, um, um, at least in, in my experience, uh, you have to be able to set um, these, these precedents and set these um, kind of frameworks at the very beginning, right? So that would be my job if I were the FMEA coordinator. I would say, okay, who are the stakeholders? Who, what, do, what is the actual framework that we're working in right now? And go from there. So um, FMEAs in and of themselves, um, and I'm, I'm not sure if uh, some of the listeners, they may have seen them, they may not have, but if you haven't seen one, they can be hundreds of pages long sometimes, you know, uh, and it's kind of like, well, how, how can this happen? Well, we're making sure that we're um, uh, capturing as many failures as possible and also making sure that we have preventive and detection controls in place. Um, but all of that takes time, right? And the, it, when you talk about automotive, we're talking about starting a, a process or starting a platform, you know, way two to three years before the actual year of the platform, right? And so we call that the um, part production approval process or PPAP process. So it may take within the first two years, we're starting the design FMEA, but it may take a year and a half to quote unquote complete an FMEA, the design FMEA, right? So it's a living document and you're constantly working on it. And that's why you really need um, a coordinator or someone who's there to mediate that process because it can get completely overwhelming, as you just said. It's funny because in the times I've had the chance to facilitate the FMEA, folks mm-hmm. are a little bit disgruntled when they when they learn that we may need more than one day. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, your point is so well taken. I think what Absolutely. you opened up, the, the second point here was so on point about books and how they, ne- you know, they, they teach you the process of doing an FMEA and they'll show you the template yeah. and all of that standard is cookie cutter. Like it's every book is almost the same. Your point about facilitating, I think, is really the magic and the opportunity for our listeners to really get into. Um, so oh, yeah. the question I want to throw your way is, could you share with us maybe at least one of your worst moments in facilitating mm-hmm. the FMEA and really take <laughs> us into that moment and you know, help us understand you know, the facilitation process and how things may have gone wrong and some of the tactics that you, you may have used to hopefully bring it back? Right. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, I've had more than one bad moment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Truth, but it's but it's part of it's part of it, right? That's part of the the technical discussion and uh, you know the this dialogue that you absolutely have to have. Um, so you know, uh, I think one of the worst moments that I've had as a quality leader in facilitating FMEA um, is that the main thing that I see is that people don't take it seriously, right? even though it's a requirement. So this perspective of pencil whipping, quote-unquote pencil whipping, for these documents um, is critically harmful because it's 
not allowing us to do a deep dive into the issues within the process or design, right? Um, and for the automotive industry, the design FMEA actually can become a document for uh, that's subpoenaed for litigation um, if something does happen, okay? So it's a very serious <laughs> document, right? So earlier I was talking about implementation of this FMEA quality management system, right? Um, it became very clear to me that not only did the employees not take it seriously, right, but also the supervisors and the management team didn't think of it criti as critically important either, okay? And so you would think, well, um, that doesn't make sense. These, you know, the supervisors, uh, the management team, they um, they know it's important because they've been doing it for years and all these kinds of things, but everybody's kind of nonchalant about doing the FMEAs in general. So once we kind of started deploying this FMEA QMS, and we had to do it globally, right, um, we started seeing a few things. Uh, number one, we realized that you have to uh, make it seem serious to the people that, that you're working with, right? So you have, there's this level of criticality, if you will, that has to be, uh, that the people have to be convinced of before they actually take it seriously. Um, and then also uh, we started seeing that as we standardized the FMEA, and when I mean by standardized, I mean um, you know as an organization exactly how you're kind of sort of in a, in a larger, in a very large sense, how you're going to design the process or how the process already works, right? You already know these things. And so all you really need to do at this point is standardize how you're going to think about um, assessment of the risk, right? So once that became standardized, it was definitely easier for me to communicate with employees. Um, and I also heard less complaints because now everything has a uh, harmonization uh, or commonization, if you will, um, across the organization. And then the last thing um, that I think uh, kind of helped me get out of these worst moments of <laughs> FMEA uh, is that you, uh, you really have to have top management support to carry these things out efficiently, right? Um, it became easier for us from the top down to train employees on the fundamentals of FMEA, on the specific software, uh, software rather, that we use globally, and also to discuss differences and commonalities within the design and the production processes. So um, I can I can honestly say that you know, this, this worst moment, I've had so many worst moments. I've even had um, where someone said, oh, well, you know, this isn't, this, th I don't think that this is how we should do FMEA, right? But this is how, I, you know, as FMEA global coordinator, this is, this is how we're doing it. This is how we're deploying it. This is what top management has agreed to. And so those are the, you're kind of always dealing with this pushback um, and, and, in order for you to really move forward and not have these worst moments, you really have to get on their page. You really have to uh, uh, make sure that you have that top management support to even implement um, a lot of these things. And um, 
yeah, that's all I'll say about that one. I could talk. I feel like I could talk about worst moments forever. But <laughs> it sounds like they were just the uh, the stones to help sharpen your axe. Because it, it sounds like in a true facilitation moment, you are the coordinator. You are you know leading the troops down that path to get the FMEAs done. So. Yeah, your points about the FMEAs not being taken seriously, I can definitely relate to that because, again, that, that kind of even goes back to, you know, my quick blurb about, hey, guys, you know, we're going to do an FMEA. I have two or three days or whatever blocked out, and it's like, oh, you know, that that oh moment. And then, and then I, I have my own internal, like, oh, what do you mean, oh, oh, you know, you right. guys should be excited, <laughs> you know. Um, so, exactly. so I'm right right there with you, and then leadership support. I mean, that goes without speaking, and we hear that in everything we do. If we're trying to deploy Lean or Six Sigma, if we're trying to, right. you know, deploy a uh, Kaizen event or do an FMEA, it always comes right. back to leadership. And I, I'm not in a C-level position myself, but mm -hmm. the amount of attention that they're paying to all different aspects of the business, hard to really connect the dot, but it all comes back to quality at the end of the day. So right. Um, right. to not have them in the position to make their jobs easier, but their job is so complex that it doesn't get all their attention. It's an interesting dynamic exactly. that I've tried to think through on many occasions. Okay. So, so no, yeah. those are just, you yeah. know, as I listen to, to your points about worst moments, you know, those those definitely jumped out and related to me personally. Um, I don't know if you have any other key takeaways or any any last points you want our quality people to pull out of your moments, and then I'll move us to, to the next question I have for you. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you really have to make sure that uh, – you know, like I said, those three things, uh, making sure people understand it's serious, making sure that you have a method for standardizing it, and then also making sure that you have that management support. I mean, those are really the key things. Um, but also, too, if you are leading an FMEA uh, or, you know, leading a team to conduct an FMEA analysis, do not get, do not get discouraged. And don't show people that you're just, that you may be discouraged. That also doesn't help the situation either. <laughs> so, you know, try to be as positive and 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 implement you know different different breaks and and um, making sure that you can relate. You know, doing doing fun kinds of things. Like I even I've even done um, uh, you know projects where people had to build things and build a, build towers out of different materials, and I gave them different um, specifications and then. To apply FMEA knowledge, I said, well, what happens, what would happen if you cut this material by an inch? Are you going to get the same stability? Okay, if not, what's the potential failure there, right? So you have to do some engaging pieces uh, to really get teams involved and, um, and, and really engaged into FMEA. Otherwise, it just seems like it's just another pencil whipping exercise, and it's not helpful for the organization. All right, fair enough. So don't do like Jarvis and yell back at them and lock the door. And <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Stay, stay positive. <laughs> All right, so Alicia, could you give our quality people maybe one tip or tool or tactic that you found works very well for building those intimate connections within your project teams? And, and you know, what is it and how would you apply it? Well, um, actually, that, that kind of goes with uh, what I was saying about the, the engagement part. Um, I don't know how many FMEA trainings you've been to um, or that, our list, that the listeners have been to, but um, a lot of times if you're just listening to FMEA or learning about FMEA, it tends to be very 
very dry, right? And so people don't really want to absorb the information that you're saying because it's just there's no engagement there. So um, you have to – you have to do things like implement projects, like I like I just mentioned, but also even um, um, practical application, right? So how does this really apply to the things that you're doing in your daily work? I'll give an example of this. Um, I was working with uh, some of our, um, at the time, CAD designers, and the, they uh, didn't really feel like FMEA was part of their responsibility, because they're not actually doing the design, right? They are given some perspectives or the, you know, the specifications by which to design and they put it into the the computer and then you have a result, right? But at the end of the day, right, they have a significant insight because many of them have experience with the, the of, of what works best um, they have experience with the material. They have experience with um, the actual software and maybe even some of the um, the testing that's done on the final or prototype uh, parts, right? So they have all this insight, and yet they didn't feel as though they needed to contribute information to uh, the FMEA analysis. And what I had to realize was I had to create a space for them um, to kind of like uh, templates as well as daily engagement with everyone, daily and weekly engagement. Um, And by daily, I mean one person a a day. But uh, everyone I met with individually once per week, even if that was, hey, how's this going? Do we have any additional analysis to add? Um, Did you find anything else within the design review? Um, Those are the kinds of engaging pieces that are critical um, as as far as making sure that you're interacting with that core process team or that core knowledge team, right? So it's this level of engagement that as an FMEA coordinator, you almost have to be willing to do. You you have to be willing to do that. Otherwise, you're not going to get the most uh, robust type of documentation that you need uh, for your organization. And this this should really be used to improve your organization, um, and your processes within your organization. Well, and I'm sorry, I think I'm still laughing at the fact that you said FMEA education can be dry. <laughs> that, <laughs> it, it's, it's only reliability engineering. I don't see what's so dry about that. Right. It, I mean, come on. What do you mean? <laughs> no, and it's, it's sad. It, it is dry material, and it's so critically important. That's the that's the, right. the interesting balance. Yeah. Alicia, let me ask you this. What are some ways that you would recommend to newcomers of FMEAs to stay current with the practice? And are there any additional organizational practices? You, you share so many so far, but any additional ones that you would recommend that our listeners to consider when they're implementing um, within their own organizations? Yes. Um, I have I have a few few points there. So, you know, like I said earlier, uh, there are really three key points that I think are critical. That's one, making sure that you have communicated the seriousness of FMEA, uh, that you standardize how you do your FMEA, and also get that management support. So, those are I'm going to keep saying that over and over again. Those are the three key points for FMEA success. I will say in an organization, but um, 
again, you can't do this in an hour, right? And it, it, like I said, it could take months. It could take years. So I have some additional um, implementation steps um, that I think are really key. Uh, first of all, a lot of times you get a p- group of people in a room, and it's, it actually may not be the right people that you need, right? So you might actually need to talk to someone in purchasing if you're talking about receiving, you know, inspection on a, in a process, right? You might, you might need to even talk to somebody from sales uh, if, if you're talking about those kinds of things. Um, but in any case, before you do an FMEA, you have to determine who the stakeholders are within that FMEA analysis. And that even includes the management team. That could that could mean that um, you know the the president or <laughs> the vice president has some kind of tribal knowledge that will be critical to the FMEA analysis, right? So you have to make those determinations. That's the first thing that you have to do before, as you're implementing um, FMEA. The next thing, um, of course, is determine um, you know what type of FMEA analysis is needed. So are we, assert, we, are we assessing risk within a process, right? So if that's the case, uh, you might need some design input, right? But they won't have all of, the, all of the information needed, right? You need process engineers. You need industrial engineers, those guys to really give you the, the meat of, uh, of the knowledge that's needed for the, the FMEA analysis. So, or even, you know, is this the development of a medical device, right? So then we're talking about designers and design engineers, right? That absolutely has to be determined early on as well. Um, The other thing that I would kind of suggest, especially to newcomers, um, is, and and it differs for each organization, right? Um, But I would actually suggest providing some type of incentive or consequence for conducting FMEA. And I know that sounds harsh to say consequence, right? But uh, but I think what it does is that it <laughs> yes, incentives. Primarily incentives, right? But but what it does is um it creates this value for conducting FMEA, especially if you have um especially if you have someone who is a coordinator on site. If you don't have a coordinator on site, that's fine. Um, but what it does is that it creates a value, right? And that could be, hey, you get lunch for a day, right? Or, hey, you get to leave early two hours, right? How much money is that going to cost uh, an organization? Um, and that's actually something that that's another reason why you need the support of the management team to kind of discuss those kinds of things for people to take it seriously, right? Um and then the other thing that I would say that's critical, um, but this takes time, is um, making sure that you guys standardize the FMEA process. And when I, say, when I say standardize, that means when are you going to conduct FMEA? Is it going to be, are you going to do it now and meet once a week to conduct the FMEA, the initial FMEA analysis? Are you going to review it every six months? Are you going to review it every year? Um, how are these how how are the items and functions, effects, and preventive actions and things evaluated? Um, have we agreed on how to evaluate a similar failure across the organization, right? Have we determined the RPN value or the RPN threshold that, we, um, that we're going to use, right? So that's what I mean by standardization of uh, determining the standardization. And then the other piece for newcomers is pursue as many training possibilities or training opportunities as possible. 
Um, and the automotive industry, the FMEA handbook is actually changing. So we're, they're combining the German VDA or Saudi A standard with the American or AIAG standard, right? So, but that requires training. So really you have to stay abreast as well as your stakeholders. They should be aware and abreast of any changes that are going to take place in evaluating um, um, FMEAs and understanding what FMEA means to your organization, um, not just to your organization, but also to other regulatory bodies as well. Those are the things that I would say newcomers, those are the things you should take charge on. Oh, those are excellent points. And um, to your point about the training, I was going to ask a question about formal trainings too. Uh, to your, the best of your knowledge, are there formal training programs or training organizations specific to FMEAs? And um, if you know of any that are specific even to healthcare, that mm -hmm. would be pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things there. The AIAG, Automotive Industry Action Group, um, they have a great FMEA training, um, and it's it, of course it's more applicable to automotive, but um, it, it's a very good basic training on FMEA. Uh, so I would def and I've actually participated in that, so I can actually say, hey, this is a good general idea for how you do FMEA. Um, and then in terms of the healthcare industry, I've actually primarily read literature. So I'm, you know, because I, I went to graduate school, I, I, I know about literature and journal articles and things about FMEA. Um, but I came across a couple of things. So the American Society for Quality or ASQ, they actually have a free webinar um, about healthcare quality um, and focus uh, practical application of, of FMEA. So if you're an, a member of the ASQ, it's a free webinar for you. Um, so it's something that you can definitely take, you know, in your spare time. It's only an hour. And then um, also I came across an FMEA workshop um, with the Maryland, pa Maryland Patient Safety Center. Um, and so they give workshops not just about FMEA in healthcare, but also about lean in healthcare, doing root cause analysis, things of that sort. Um, so I've, I've also come across that. And then um, in terms of other literature, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, or AHRQ, actually has information on FMEA on their website. Um, they include definitions, relevant literature, and even relevant books uh, to read describing FMEA as it relates to the healthcare sector. Put a plug out there for the Quality Coaching Company. We're delivering some workshops on FMEAs as well. So um, awesome. all of that's coming. Awesome. Um, I, I did actually and unfortunately skip over one question that I have for you, Alicia. Could you share with us maybe one of your best aha moments that you've had in facilitating FMEAs? What was that moment? Uh, what were you all working through as a team? And how were you able to take that idea and maybe turn it into a personal or professional success? Oh, wow. So I, I think that's a really uh, – <laughs> I think that's a great question because, um, again, FMEA – facilitating FMEA can be very difficult um, depending on the, on the team and on the group. Um, and I'll go back to this, this, or this, you know, one of the previous groups that I was working with. And um, one of the things that I've realized in terms of just general aha moments um, was while I was in graduate school. And um, I realized that teaching and training and really engaging with people, um, those are things that I absolutely need to have and need to do um, in my work and in my career to really feel fulfilled. And so uh, in this one particular uh, workshop, uh, I had a, a team of people or this, I should say, 
really just one person, um, kind of complaining about, uh, you know, why are we doing this and what is this and how are we doing that and so on and so forth. And what I realized is that as a teacher or trainer of FMEA, um, I have some experience, but this person actually has as much experience well, I should say more experience in the automotive industry than I have, and uh, that person can really give uh, their insight into um, into FMEA because they have more experience than I do. And so what I actually did was I had that person um, get in front of the, the the classroom or the the group and the workshop that I was that I was conducting, and actually got him very involved in the rest of the workshop. And what I found was that um, for even though you might feel like you know a lot of things or you're passionate about certain things, uh, when you have individuals who are kind of who you think may be uh, distracting the, the room, they actually have and can provide a lot of insight uh, to the workshop and, and you have to leverage that. And that actually really helps the, or that really helped the, the group learn more um, this person talked about their experiences with FMEA and, and their, you know, prior workings and facilitation of, of FMEA, and it really helped the organization. It really helped the group. So, yeah, that was kind of an aha moment for me because it's not all about me. It's not all about us as a facilitator. It's really important that you leverage the knowledge and things that you have in the room to make that workshop successful. I have a term for what you did there. Um, okay. So, that kind of a person, you know, when we always get that kind of a person on on any project or any group meeting that we're facilitating, mm-hmm. I call them cave people. So a uh, <laughs> cave person, a citizen against virtually everything. And oh, wow. it sounds like what you were able to do there, I call it evolving a cave person. It's, it's when you can get that cave person to interact and to participate and, and to go from being just the naysayer to being one of the team leads. You evolved a cave person. Yeah. So so yeah. that's that's my term for that. That is a great term. I That is great. I can't wait to use that. <laughs> that is a wonderful <laughs> term. And uh, I mean, it, because it, it, a lot of times you don't know what to do, right? You 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 you're giving your information. I'm I'm doing the best that I possibly can, um, and then you have someone who's really just not. Um, it, it's kind of distracting, to be honest, to the rest of the group. So, wow, evolving a cave person. Yeah, it's such a great feeling when you can get them bought in, and and they become you know one of the biggest champions. It's, it's a great moment as a facilitator. So I I love. You know, just hearing that, and that's been my experience. And I'm sure I, I've told that that term "cave person" from someone myself, but yeah. that's what I called it. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. I'm definitely using that. All right, Alicia, you're doing an, an amazing, amazing, amazing job. I'm going to run you through or move move us into our two minute drill. Um, so I, I know I've probably gone way over the time that I that I've asked for you today tonight, but um, I'm almost. <laughs> Almost ready to let you go. Okay, okay. I think I'm ready. Here we're going to learn a lot more about you. And so my first question, Alicia, is tell our quality people something about your current role that inspires you to do your best day in and day out as a quality professional. Oh, man. So my current role has really allowed me to gain some very challenging experiences, including being a quality manager. Um, But I think the most inspiring thing about doing my best is that I have a great support system with 
the colleagues that I work with. Um, the team and my colleagues, were they're always willing to help with whatever questions I have and also challenge me to answer even more difficult questions. So though that is what inspires me, the team and my colleagues. Awesome. Well, shout out to the team. Thank you guys for uh, for for pushing her and and helping her be the awesome professional that she is. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I'll let them know. <laughs> uh, what's the best piece of career advice that you've ever received? So um, one of my mentors has always informed me how to um, consider my callings. My callings. I, I really think teaching and training and mentorship, leadership. Um, always, I always have to think about those things and how they impact my daily work. Otherwise, I won't be fulfilled in any of the roles that I have. So I encourage anybody listening to this uh, to take the time to find out what makes you tick. And in any role that you obtain, you should be living in your callings and in your purposes daily, even if it doesn't make sense to anyone else, right? So I just told you I went from biochemist to, you know, bioorganic chemist to now being a quality, you know, quality systems consultant, a quality manager, um, IETF implementation person, specialist. Um, Those are are all things that uh, if you look at my track record, um, I'm always teaching and training folks along the way and trying to mentor uh, young people along the way. So none of those things have changed, right? So make sure that you find what makes you tick find what your purpose is, and then move forward from there. Perfect. I love it. Do you have a mentor that has had an impact on your career? I actually have a few mentors that have encouraged me, um, and I'm going to talk primarily about um, – so two of them are actually from my dissertation uh, committee, one being my Ph.D. advisor, um, another on my dissertation committee, and then um, another uh, professor uh, at University of Michigan, she basically helped me through a whole bunch of things, <laughs> and, at least in terms of developing my career. But really what they all helped me do is make critical decisions about next steps, right? So they were always saying, hey, Alicia, you're good at this. You should try to do this. Um, and so this helped me in my research and grant management career um, and, of course, even uh, my quality career because I'm still – um, listening to the things that they've said. And, of course, I'm happy to, to say that I even have mentors in the automotive realm as well. So, um, But the, the core folks um, on my Ph.D. committee and my dissertation advisor, I mean, they really kind of took me to the, to the next heights to where I said, okay, these are the things that I need to do and I can really I, – I have fearlessness now, right? I can, I can do these things because they've given me the, comp, uh, the confidence to – to really go out and, and live my dreams. Next one for you. Uh, could you share a personal habit that contributes to your success when leading quality improvement initiatives? You know, honestly, I meditate and pray every day. That that's that's what I do in the morning. Um, I I'm I kind of say grateful uh, that I'm grateful for certain things. I have this level of gratitude that really helps me get a clear head before I have to meet with a client or have a heavy meeting with, uh, you know, an organization, Those, that really helps me get my head clear enough uh, for me to focus on the tasks at hand. And, you know, I, I would also even, you know, for, for folks, I know a lot of people feel as though, oh, that's so far out of the, I can't do that, or, you know, meditation isn't for me or anything like that. Um, 
and and you can feel that way, but I think what it does is that it allows me to get centered, right, before I have to go on with my day. So downloading, you know, a, a meditation app, app or watching a five-minute meditation on, on YouTube or even just listening to water, you know, on YouTube, like the water droplets and rain, even that kind of helps you clear your head. Um, so those are, that's really my personal habit that kind of gets me through the day. Perfect. A moment of zen. I love it. Yeah. So could you please share your number one Internet resource that helps you to be the most productive? Yes. I am going to say, well, at this point, Trello. Um, I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with Trello. Um, A huge Trello fan. Add on, yes, and it's uh, the the add-on Elegant. What I like, obviously, Trello um, is a project management tool for those who may not be aware, and it allows you to create projects, um, which are boards, and then you add cards, which are essentially the task you need to complete the project. But what I love about Elegant is that for every card that you put in there uh, or add to the board, you can actually um, have a date, a start date and an end date, and it creates a Gantt chart for you. So you can see where everything is due at the top of your boards. And it is phenomenal. That to me, keeps me very productive. Okay. Well, funny enough, I use Trello to help manage the podcast show. And I will be looking into that add-on. I, I'm not aware about that one, but... Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's what I love. I love it. <laughs> Could you share with our quality people one professional association and one professional conference that you think would be a value add? Yes. So I attend events definitely associated with the automotive industry, um, particularly the Future Automotive Experts um, events. Um, that allows me to kind of get net um, to to network with other um, young professionals who are in the automotive industry um, and also get some insight into, you know, supply chain and quality and things of that sort. It kind of keeps you abreast of those things. But um, even more importantly, um, you and I connected on LinkedIn, and there are tons of uh, organizations and things um, on LinkedIn and groups on LinkedIn, I should say, that can help you stay abreast of what is relevant in um, the healthcare realm, um, the automotive sector, anything like that. So I, I would say, you know, definitely stay um, in terms of professional associations, connect with those groups on LinkedIn as well, because it's one of the best ways to connect with people now. And then um, in terms of a conference, um, I would also say that right now we're in a place of really taking technology to the next level. Um, I would encourage people, and I, I didn't even get to go to this conference, but the CES conference in Las Vegas, um, I, you, you already know, and I'm sure you've heard about some of the digital health applications. And, um, and for the automotive industry, there were tons of electronic uh, applications and also um, we need to start looking at things um, from a blockchain perspective and AI perspective. Um, those are the those are the technologies that I, at least in my opinion, those are the things that are going to take um, our sectors to the next level. Um, and I'm really into learning about blockchain. I'm really into learning about AI as well as AR as well, and how you can really get groups of young people engaged using AR. Um, it, it's just a phenomenal thing. So I would say CES and or, um, uh, you know, other 
kind of technological conferences that will expose you to blockchain, AI, AR, and so forth. No, and I, I look forward to staying connected with you long past this show, and so we can continue to show, share notes. Because, like we were talking, um, you know, right before we jumped into our interview, I, I'm right there with you. I think these are the things that are literally in every way going to change the world. And you know, from a healthcare perspective, healthcare industry, you know, we're still kind of scratching our head, saying, "So, what is blockchain?" And, you know, I think it's now time to have the conversation and say, okay, yes, what is blockchain and how will that impact us and how can we leverage it and, you know, for patient care, for patient safety, to reduce the cost of healthcare services, you know, all the things that are being discussed in the media nowadays, um, I think these are going to be some very dynamic fixes. So um, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm glad you shared that view. Last Question before the big finale. Could you recommend one book that our listeners would benefit from and why? Absolutely. My book that I would recommend is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Um, and I recommend reading this because, um, and I, I can talk about qual being a quality professional, right? So living in the now is a common problem among quality professionals or professionals in general because we're always thinking about what potential things can happen in the future, i.e. potential failure modes and effects analysis, right? So um, we, we're constantly living in the future um, and or the past, right, if we're looking at data um, or things that, that failed, right, failures in the field or failures that we've seen. Um, but since you can't really do that uh, from a work perspective, we really need to revel in this um, on a personal level, right, because – that, that now is really all that we have on that personal level, and I think that creates um, a, a different space uh, for, for us as quality professionals and, and, like I said, professionals in general to really concentrate on what is here, what is now, so that we can live our, really live our best lives. Perfect. And I, I've read a few of his books, and they are all thought-provoking and powerful books. So uh, I, I appreciate that recommendation. And talking about living in the now – this is one of my personal favorites because I am going to actually try to get you to think um, and, and reflect on your past, why you look forward to your future. Uh, so let's say you're able to send one text message to yourself 10 years into the past and one text message to yourself 10 years into the future. What would you communicate in each of those messages? Mm, that's a really, really great question. <laughs> um <laughs> and there, it's, this is a funny question because I think it's easy to think of what to say to yourself in the past, but to say it in the future, it, it's, uh, right? So I think what I would say to myself in the past would be very simple. Um, you know, I would say, I would text, uh, you already know what you're called to do, just be it and accept it. I know 10 years ago, I would totally understand what that meant. Um and uh and then in the future i think i would it would have to be probably as general but i would say something to the effect of see there was nothing to worry about you had this all along right um especially you know if, if i'm still around so <laughs> so i think that there's a i think there's a a level of things here one you have to um 
especially in the future, right? We think things aren't going to come to fruition and we get frustrated or what have you, but usually things turn out okay, right? <laughs> even though if it, even though it may not look the best, usually things turn out okay. Well, see, now, now you have me thinking, had I actually done an SMEA on my own question there, I would have anticipated somebody saying, assuming I'm still around. <laughs> In my world, you are around 10 years from now. Um, no, those, those right. are great messages. Thank you for yeah. for entertaining that question. Um, it's always just kind of one of my favorites to get people to, to think about where they've been and kind of where they're going. So thank you for everything. This has been hands down probably one of my favorite conversations so far, um, simply because we, we really got in depth about a great topic and um, it obviously impacts your world. Um, it's something my healthcare leaders are doing, and um, I think we just need to continue to promote it, to do it better. So thank you mm -hmm. for your time, your advice, your knowledge. Um, that's the end of the show, but before I let you go, would you have any okay. parting advice? Please do share maybe the best way that our quality people and our healthcare leaders can connect with you or follow you through social media, and then I will officially let you go. Okay, no problem. Well, of course, I'd like to thank you, Jarvis, for having me on the Quality Cast. Um, and, you know, just in terms of advice, of course, remember the, the three pieces that I told you, the three key pieces that, you know, it's got to be, we've got to think about this seriously. We've got to standardize. We've got to get management support to be effective and run um, effective FMEA impl implementations. So um, if I can help you or your colleagues or anyone listening to this implement FMEA in, uh, in your organization, um, please feel free to reach out me. Reach out to me um, on LinkedIn, and I am uh, Alicia M. Gabriel. So just my name. Uh, just go ahead and connect with me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to to connect with me. Um, I love LinkedIn. It's great. <laughs> and um, and also too, you can also reach out to me. So I also do some community work in um, in STEAM, so science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. Um, and I have an organization that I co-founded called uh, Motor City Steam. So if you go to www.motorcitysteam.com, uh, we're doing work, including creating a project called the Lab Drawer um, to positively impact underrepresented middle school students in the Detroit area. And so we've been, you know, kind of uh, developing our product. We've been talking about how to get uh, underrepresented groups in, into STEM and into STEAM. Um, these are all critical things, so definitely check me out there. Uh, also on Instagram, Motor City Steam, or the Lab Drawer, and also again on LinkedIn as Alicia M. Gabriel. So thank you so much. I really, really appreciate this. No, and, and I will absolutely post all the information about Motor City Motor City Steam. Um, there's something totally brand new I just learned about you again. So um, anything <laughs> we could do to help you know, bring more visibility to your program. You know, we'd love to get the support. Alicia, awesome. again, thank you. Great conversation. Okay, great. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate speaking with you, and this was just a really great time to talk about FMEA. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Quality Cast, brought to you by the Quality Coaching Company. If you love the Healthcare Quality Cast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review. Until next time.